welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today with us is Ant. Ant, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Ant, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're doing your PhD? Um, I'm a first year PhD between Royal Holloway and the British Library. It's it's rooted in the the sources of caricatures at the British Library. Oh, right. So you're working with sort of visual sources. Is this in a particular time period? The caricatures are taken from the Franco-Prussian War and the Paris Commune, which for people who hate ancient history like Georgia does, that is biblical times, as in 1870 to 1871. The normal 19th century, not the long 19th century. No, no. Actually, within the 19th century. (laughs) This is going to be a stupid question, and I do think I know the answer. Are there any short centuries? There's a short 20th century, right? I mean, there's a short 21st century, surely. Yeah, that's the shortest century to date. (laughs) Although it feels extremely long at the moment. (laughs) That is true. I'm guessing that the short 20th century must go like 1914 to 1990, right? Like, Yeah, uh... I guess, you know, something period that would probably be typically reflective of what you think of when you imagine 20th century. So, yeah, pretty much from like the First World War to the end of the Soviet Union feels like a good a good way to carve it off. Nothing particularly interesting happened in like 1912. Uh, a Titanic sinking? I can't the Titanic sank? <laughs> yeah, I Titanic <laughs> Rest in peace, people. Yeah, we'll just we'll just put that on the end of the long the long nineteen. <laughs> it began with the French Revolution and ended with a bunch of people dying because they hit an iceberg. Wow, what a what a century! Unrivaled. It was a big century for icebergs. Certainly much bigger than any subsequent centuries. Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean they've they've been cancelled a little bit, haven't they? Really, icebergs. Yeah, they're, they're in the process of being cancelled by global warming. I thought global warming was cancelled. I'm not entirely sure how cancel culture works anymore. Oh, everyone everyone just cancels each other. It all cancels out. Deary me, this is a discourse graveyard. So let's get back to it. Tell us a little bit about your, your PhD project. Obviously you're in the early going, but what are your intentions for it? Where's it going? Okay, so, so I looked at my proposal briefly just before preparing this, and obviously I've moved on from there already within six months but the caricatures they primarily come from Paris and so France obviously amongst other European nations has a long tradition of producing satirical prints and depending on who you ask it could be Britain could be France but at cities and locales across Europe through this period and presumably the world I mean <laughs> my source base is only quite small but presumably across the world um, and specifically Europe there is a great tradition through the 19th century the long 19th century and, and beyond of producing caricatures and that is aided by the invention of the lithograph which is something that's quite predominantly used to create these caricatures so there's quite a lot of studies through the French 19th century wonderful studies about their revolutionary moments and their relationships with caricatures and yeah so the Paris Commune in the Franco-Prussian War obviously coincides with the the rise of the photograph which had been invented 40 years earlier Um, It was one of the first wars after the Crimean and the American Civil War uh, to be photographed, so there's that, but caricatures are kind of left by the wayside, despite the fact they are so unbelievably prevalent through Paris in this period. As I said, they sort of appear in newspapers and circle lithographs. Um, I'm going to try and not say any French words, even though I can speak French, just so I don't butcher the most beautiful language in existence. Well, one of. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the newspapers disappear, and Paris itself is flooded with the single-sheet caricatures which sort of insane. And censorship systems are abandoned. 
But, you know, one of the things I'd say is that it's not just limited to Paris. In terms of the production, I was quite interested in terms of the city of space as a consumption of these satirical lithographs. And with a particular interest looking, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in Germany as a person. So I guess, I guess I was interested in German spaces, perhaps Austrian spaces too. So thinking Munich, Vienna, Berlin, Stuttgart, Leipzig. Um, I just named a bunch of cities, really. But yeah, there's a lot. I was coming into this podcast thinking, oh no, I've got nothing to say. I don't know anything at all. But I've actually realized I could probably speak for about 20 minutes. So I'll stop there. Uh, no, I mean, it's absolutely great. And you're at a phase in your PhD, which for us is kind of a long time in, well, not a long time in the past, but like a little way back where like you sort of got this real spread of interests and a lot that's happening with your sources and with your ideas that you probably haven't carved down into like, okay, like, I can't do this thing. I'm gonna have to just do like a chapter on this, a chapter on this. So th this is kind of an exciting time when there is loads to say, whereas you get to where we are and it's very like, so yeah, there is this whole thing, but I realized early on that I wasn't gonna be able to write about it, so I never learned about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm in the position where everything that I see, because of obviously the Rona, everything is very enthralling. I'm amazed by it all. Like I'll read a book and be like, whoa, that happened. <laughs> Whoa, I can consider that. Or, or these people think this about that. I have to just redress that immediately. I hear a lot about the, I, I don't know what you would term it, second year blues, third year blues. Uh, not looking forward to that. And But, well, it is what it is. I'll, I'll face that those demons when I face them. Yeah, and of course, part of the purpose of this podcast is to address that while second year and third year blues are real and getting bogged down is real, they aren't the end of the world. And you can do a lot to still really enjoy your PhD while kind of wading through the, the knee-high, <laughs> wading yeah. through the knee-high water of doing your PhD, knee-high if you are lucky. But yeah, so I was really interested with this uh, thing you just said about photography, obviously, because you know me, I love photography. I hadn't really considered how close in proximity your time period is to the invention of the photograph and what that must have meant for visual sources. So is it sort of generally thought that people felt that photographs sort of superseded the need for lithographs? Or did they complement? I guess they are dealing with different subject matters. So there's a really, really famous article. I can't say the author's name, to be honest. I have Googled this before. But there's a really famous article which sort of seeks to address the lack of photographs and the lack of visual sources. I guess you're both familiar with sort of the idea that visual studies are underutilized. So there was a really famous article talking about how the photograph has been left out of historiography by same old class disdain, I think it was called, and it was lovely. So it's a wonderful article dealing with the photographs of the Paris Commune, especially. So in the aftermath, photographs are really restricted by the state. They sort of say, like, no one can distribute these. There's a, there's a conversation about uh, politicized forgetting. But anyway, the, the photographs that are generally permeated are of the ruins of Paris, the burnt out ruins of Paris, which obviously serve the purpose of being like, whoa, look how bad socialism is, or, you know, look how bad being a revolutionary is, and then portraits, which are specially sort of approved. But there are also photographs of dead bodies, and they are incredibly morose and touching to look upon. There are photographs of people standing very properly by their barricades and by their guns and they, they're sort of celebrating their revolutionary moment which you've got to love whereas the caricatures i guess they, they deal with such a massive range of things they deal it, it seemed bizarre because i remember thinking it writing about it in my proposal and being like nah that's too cheesy but they deal with the human condition to an extent where everything everything you could possibly think of is depicted in a caricature so for instance uh, the british library got we got thousands of them 
and they're all volumized by this this guy uh, Frederick Justin, a London bookseller, shortly after the Paris Commune fell in eighteen, uh, he did it in eighteen seventy two, and they're they're into ten volumes and they're all separated quite nicely, so it makes quite a an good analysis of like who is this guy, what were his interests, what what did he classify these things as? But volume ten is a, a series of a well. A lot, and it's under lock and key, I think, at the British Library, of erotic caricatures, which is, you know, I, <laughs> I guess a point of interest. Um, perhaps that will be one of the things I, um, you know, mention in a sentence in my thesis and never think about it again. But the, the fact that these caricatures sort of try and make humour of this horrendous situation, because Paris is under siege for four months. You know, this, this is the glittering metropolis, the capital of the 19th century. I mean, even now, when we think of Gay Paris, I certainly think of a wonderful, luxurious place where I can go and pretend to be an intellectual. But yeah, Paris under siege, there's there's massive famine, they're being shelled every day by the Prussians, and you know, things like food shortages are prevalent a lot through caricatures. So that yeah, I would say they deal with different subjects and therefore in historical study at least complement each other. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, you know, especially thinking about like the technological limitations of photography in this time. Like it's this incredibly exciting new technology, but you talked about its use in the um the American Revolutionary War. The only sort of battlefield photographs they could do in that time because everything had to be still and it had to be like a long exposure were either sort of like aftermath photography, so like, you know, a battlefield littered with cannonballs, or it was quite posed. So it might be made to look like, oh, this is a sniper's nest or whatever, but actually it was, you know, a very um, artificial production. And it was still presented as kind of a um, an objective truth, because that's how photography was sort of understood at that point. But it actually maybe had less claims to certain types of truth than maybe caricature did in terms of like, the way caricature could reflect public feeling or or something, you know, quite far beyond just an objective representation. I guess one of the things is that, you know, as you said, the exposure time means that you need to be still where in a caricature you can show a bit more motion, a bit more movement. Do you find that those caricatures are a bit more dynamic than really the photographs that are of this period yeah so i've got two things to say here first about the technology you're absolutely right georgia so there's a famous photographer eugene napaper who after the paris commune falls goes around paris and sort of retakes a lot of photographs of things that have happened during the caricatures so he, he stages these photographs so for instance the commune starts with the assassination or the murder of two generals one who's just kind of walking around the city and he'd been a He'd been a real bastard a couple of, like, 40 years, 30 years ago in a different revolution. And they, they saw him and were like, right, you're coming with us, mate. Um, and yeah, so and they were both shot. And Eugene sort of goes around and uh, fixes all these photographs, trying again reproduce the crimes of the commune. Um, in regards to the caricatures representing reality a little bit better, you're absolutely right. So an interesting thing or a prominent thing about the study of caricatures and the study of any sort of media like this is censorship. And there's heavy censorship of caricatures through the Second Empire, so the period just before this whole thing goes off. And basically what the caricaturists do, because they can no longer criticise people directly, they can't like draw Napoleon III and be like, this guy's a real douche, and then they'll draw him in the shower or something, or, you know, whatever, wordplay. Um, they, they sort of have to... <laughs> they sort of have to... Oh, douche is uh, French. Oh, wow, that is wonderful. Anyway, yeah. anyway, wow, wow, love that. So they, they basically develop this general critique of the bourgeoisie and the citizenry through the caricatures. So they would have picked like 
middle class men doing something funny and it'll meant to be it's a critique of them rather than it's 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 kind of that merengue quote of oh I hate <laughs> I hate artists and writers who use subtext are all cowards but they they were really forced to use subtext in in evading these sort of fines and censorship and and jail times which you know through the early part of the century they they meted out so many jail times and so many suspensions of papers so yeah they they were forced to try and find new discursive ways to to represent reality or represent their opinions and they represent their feelings towards matters or their their takes on the the objective reality in in quotes and then that's 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 still true through the commune like you get a lot as i said on food shortages and these kind of like critiques of the world around them but then obviously with the collapse of a lot of censorship systems they can once again return to criticizing these people front on and they can call Napoleon a douche if they really want to. They do go further than that quite a lot, but yeah. Just thinking about what you were just saying there made me think of something. So this is from, like, the early 20th century. There was an American cartoonist, I've just looked up his name, called Ryan Walker, and he created this character called Henry Dubb, who was an American worker who was victimised by capitalism because he rejected socialist ideas. So he was one character who kind of represented a particular way of thinking. And, you know, he would be like the butt of the joke in these cartoons. You know, like workers who had absorbed socialist ideals would try and get him to sort of come around to their way of thinking and he would always end up getting like kicked in the bum by his boss and stuff like that. Like he was, you know, very much a humorous figure. But I thought it was really interesting how this idea of the Henry Dub actually ended up having kind of a cultural impact and it was used to describe a type of person when it's just a a character that's used to stand in for a bigger type of trend. I don't know if anything like that sort of turns up. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. Um, so the, the ciphers of like people themselves and ideas. So you, you get, I'm struggling to remember the names, but there's definitely one repertoire, which again, sorry, any Francophonie is listening, but he's a direct cipher for Napoleon the third, And then there's pretty oblique mention of Faustin Soluk, who is the Haitian sort of dictator. He's declared himself dictator and they use him so again, another cipher for Napoleon. But then they also have the sort of caricature, almost, of, uh, the, the, yeah, the character of the bourgeois who will appear in various guises and he'll be like a mendacious lawyer one day and he'll be a fancy man of the town the next and he'll always get his just desserts. And it, it kind of relies on a subtle knowing and intertextuality. You sort of have to read across these caricatures and be like, oh, that's that guy. And these are the ideas that were represented in that other caricature or these other caricatures. Oh, he's really got it to him this week, you know? That... I think was in the earlier period that you had this thing, correct me if I'm wrong, where they depicted the king as a pair. <laughs> because they had like one cartoon where he compared him they compared him to a pair and then they were told that they can't depict the king yeah. in a caricature. So they just depicted a pair instead of a king. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. So that's that's in eighteen thirty. Uh well, is after the eighteen thirty revolution and the ascendancy of Louis Philippe, the bourgeois king. And I mean, the guy does look like a pair, but they referred to him as a pair. And then his argument in court was that, or his argument was that it wasn't meant to represent him. It was actually meant to not represent him. So they couldn't really prosecute him for him. Obviously they did, but the pair became synonymous with him. It was such a powerful tool. And I think there's, I've read a couple of sources where the pair is just everywhere in Paris. And as soon as you see the pair, it's him, you know, even regardless. And there's a, there's a really nice caricature where it shows him. So a picture of him, and then he looks slightly more pearish. And then the third picture where he's like more pair than man, and then the final one where he is, he is the pair himself. So yeah, you're absolutely right with that. 
it's a wonderful example of how powerful and sort of interesting caricature can be. I remember thinking before the PhD, like, caricature, that's those losers who are really Islamophobic, you know? And, you know, it, it's, it's one of them things, like, it's, it's something I hadn't researched that much. <laughs> but it's um, and made perhaps a little bit less relevant to us, even though there is a real predominance of caricature. You see, you see far-rightists on the internet use them, and you're kind of like, oh, man this used to be this really powerful tool to fight the power or this used to be a really useful tool to sort of negotiate meaning in these periods. Um, and now it's these losers online who are just incredibly racist. But, you know, it's, yeah. I think the difficulty with political cartoons is it co can communicate very complex messages, but it also can't be really subtle. And I think that's kind of where the really fine line is, because obviously some of the people in the period may have been really offended by how they were depicted in there, but these emotions are not really relevant or close to our own hearts, whereas, you know, the complex messages that are there, we can sit there and decipher them a bit more, a bit more coolly yeah. than, than when, you know, we're looking at... I know, obviously, mine jumps to Charlie Hebdo. You're, you're right. Like, I can't sit here and lionize them and be like, oh, these were the fighters of the proletariat. They were the uh, intelligentsia. Like, they were, they were anti-Semitic because they sort of associated the values of the Republic against the perceived values of being Jewish, which is obviously terrible. And especially in, in my period. So a, a couple of regiments of North African soldiers come to fight for France and both German and French caricaturists are kind of obsessed with this idea for various reasons. They're kind of grotesque. They're really grotesque. I, I, I don't want to beat around the bush. They're, they're, they're just terrible images. So yeah, maybe I can see the genealogy between then and now. History studies with Anthony Chapman. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of the function of a caricature to be like visually legible for the audience that it's pitching to. And in, I, I mean, I imagine that most people in Paris in the late 19th century were like literate, but like in terms of grabbing someone's attention and communicating something very quickly and effectively, you are going to see these kind of, yeah, these like gro things that we see now as grotesque, but are just very much like exaggerated depictions of perceptions from the time and things. I guess it's um not to excuse it because that's not what we're in the business of as historians, but to like contextualize it, it's all got its own genealogies beyond just sort of uh, like our own ideas about it now. That was an, ex an incoherent. Yeah, I mean, they're in the emerging sort of sphere of race science, really, aren't they? And they're, they're, they're taking a very positivist sort of... There's some caricatures which are kind of like different. These are different races, like specifically species of people. And it's just, well, you can, you can see the links between the emerging sort of theories of race science and, and these kind of ideas, these horrendous ideas. And even the caricature, which I find, I mean, it's one of those things that you find interesting, but but a, a little bit sad as well to look at and be like, oh man, I thought, you were, I thought you were fighting the power, but actually you were a racist all along. I think the really interesting thing is that they may have been both. Yeah, of course. And that's something that we often kind of have to come to terms with uh, some of the people that we study may have supported movements that we really appreciate while also holding some views which we will think of as, you know, thoroughly disgusting. And, and that's just, that's a big ethical issue in studying history. How do we deal with morality? Because obviously, you know, if you just devoid yourself of emotion and you do an emotionless history, 
you could try to do that. I personally think that's not realistic. I also think that, especially in studying things like war and conflict, it's not really appropriate, it's not really human to devoid it of emotion. If something is a tragedy, we should call it a tragedy. Yeah, and actually failing to do so isn't objective. It takes the side of the person who's committed the violence. Yeah. If you pretend that we have to treat all historical events, you know, unemotionally and without condemning things that, that must be condemned, then you are you're tacitly saying that there's nothing different between, you know, something terrible like slavery or something terrible like the Holocaust or something that was not done by powerful people to other people, if you see what I mean. Like, it's um, it's a, a fiction which people, some people, I suppose, tell themselves to try and convince themselves that their way of doing history is right. But actually, I think there's quite a big movement towards putting yourself into the frame when you're writing history, something that anthropologists and sociologists have been doing for decades, we're finally catching up to as historians, and it's really important. It's really important for us to think not only, like, what does this mean generally, what does this mean socially, but also what does this mean for me, and how does my own way of looking at it shape what it means you know like would it be a completely different project if instead of you doing your phd it was a jewish scholar or a scholar of north african descent it absolutely would right like uh, their positionality on it is going to be different and you can acknowledge that and still point at these problematic things in the source base and also say like you know this is how i feel about them and i I think that they're bad, but I still think they they have something interesting to say. And one can even flag up work that you think isn't, like, that should be done, but isn't ours to do. question I get asked a lot is about Vietnamese women photographers, and there were some. I can't read Vietnamese. I wouldn't know where to start, you know, in terms of gaining access to the records. It's hard enough to get access to records in Vietnam anyway because of the... um the government situation there, I think that work should be done. I think it would be best if it was done by a Vietnamese woman, uh, because I think she's going to have the positionality to really make a, a, a contribution that's much more meaningful than anything I could do. You're both absolutely right, of course. Of course you are. I mean, putting yourself into history, I think the idea of there being an object of history is long gone anyway, but the, the idea of being an object of history is basically this dispassionate white man who is sat, sat at his desk writing, Rome was the coolest empire of all time, and I, and I am actually a Roman. The most wonderful thing I think about history at the moment is there are so many voices, and there are so many things that, like, I just... So in between... For, for my time off, I like to read uh, books um, that aren't particularly... They're historical books, but they aren't particularly related to my topic, and you can just pick up a book about anything. By, by anyone at the moment and like you, there's there's a proliferation of there's a, there's a bit there's a movement towards the proliferation of other people's voices and you know we've I guess Georgia and I went to the same university but there, there's also a movement towards courses that aren't focused on Europe which is pretty ironic because I'm sitting here saying France and Germany the the two <laughs> the two bros sitting in the hot tub but yeah so there's there can be a conscious effort from historians like us to sort of pay attention to those voices um, cite those voices when, where and when we can and go out of our way to do that um, which is, you know And a lot of exciting history happening from outside the academy as well especially like indigenous histories and stuff that are coming from people that have their own traditions their own indigenous knowledge of their own histories and 
are finally being given the kind of opportunities to produce those histories and have them actually be heard and read and that doesn't necessarily then need doesn't need the academy to condone it because those histories speak for themselves and i think that's really important and oral history projects are very exciting and obviously an oral history project is also very influenced by the person who is asking the questions naturally but i think the giving people the opportunity to speak and just writing down what is it that they say and what is it that they have to say about their experiences, especially when it comes to more recent history. It's useful now and I think it's going to be amazing material for historians in the future to try and understand what their experiences were like. That's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this is where acknowledging positionality because I was reading about anti-racist pedagogy, what is the best practice, according to them. And one of the things that disappearing from the race discourse is a privilege that is only given to white people. Kind of treating it as not relevant to you, not relevant to your skin colour, not relevant to your heritage, is a privilege that only, only white scholars have which is why it is particularly important for white scholars to acknowledge where they are. It kind of relates abstractly to what we were talking about just before we started the podcast about how still in so many history courses, the only week that mentions women is the gender week, as if it's only women and non-binary people and, you know, people who aren't cis men who sort of have gender. A cis man is sort of determined to be like the measuring stick by which everything else is a a deviation and so again like positionality is really important like not seeing yourself as the the default but seeing everyone as having their own unique positionality we've really set the world to rights this time do you do this often (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) can we talk about something ludicrous and fun Do you have something ludicrous and fun to tell us about? What I did, write everything funny I thought about about this time down. <laughs> no, I'm ready for this. Well, I built it up now, I built it up. So, as I've mentioned, during the Siege of Paris, four months, Prussia surrounded Paris after decimating, completely decimating Strasbourg. They sieged Metz for a, a little while, but they sort of gave up and left all their cannons and stuff, which was a bit of a bad move. Anyway, they marched to Paris, they surrounded Paris, and for four months, they sieged Paris. And as I've mentioned, it's Paris, you know? So it's a little bit bizarre to think about this modern metropolis, this glittering, this housemanized place, this this wonderful idea of the Western world with all its people, with all its ideas, with all its quote-unquote culture, to be under siege conditions. And, they, and the Parisians struggled to the point where people died from the shelling, obviously people died from hunger, um, and, you know, the, the end result of being a revolution shouldn't really be a surprise. In any case, the food they ate. So I've seen estimates. I've not been able to verify it. Obviously, there's there's no there's no death certificate for a horse. I've seen estimates of up to seventy five thousand horses consumed by the city of Paris within those four months. Seventy five thousand horses. That is a lot of horses. That's basically twenty thousand horses per month. That's just the most bangers start. But anyway, anyway, that isn't that is the the appetizer in this very food related anecdote. So, Paris, also a city of the bourgeois, and they ate the zoo. I'm on Zoom with George and Anna, and both their faces have just dropped. So there's a wonderful article by Rebecca Spang, it's almost 30 years old now, talking about how 
the Parisian Zoo was consumed. And it wasn't necessarily out of necessity. Like, it wasn't like rabbles of crowds went, oh, give me that monkey. They, they served it in the, the restaurants of Paris as like delicacies almost. So I'm going to quiz you. I've, look how the turntables turn, right? I'm going to say an animal and you have to tell me if it was really consumed or not. Okay? Yaks. I, I think you'd do the yak quite early on. I think the Paris Zoo did have yaks and I think they ate it because a yak is quite, looks like quite like a cow. Yeah, I mean, I think I think anything with four hooves, very easily consumable. You're absolutely right. Yaks is a yes. Zebras? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, that's a horse. If they ate 75,000 horses, they, they wouldn't even think twice. Okay, you're right, you're right. Lions. Ooh, I mean, firstly, you'd have to catch a lion. It's in the zoo. It's already been caught. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> no, no, but like in terms of, you know, I don't think lion is going to take it lying down. Like, I don't think are any of the animals going to take it lying down. They're like, oh, eat me, eat me. <laughs> I've accepted my fate. Okay, I, I think they did. And I will tell you why is that the uh, the other ones you've named so far would be herbivores right so you could like feed them grass and stuff but once if you've got a lion in the zoo it's actually eating meat unless you take it out so it was actually like a detriment to the overall population because it was it was taking horse out of innocent frenchman's mouth so i they i think they starved the lion and then ate it <laughs> not very tasty they didn't eat the lion. They thought it was too dangerous. Which, you know what, Georgia, your rationale is actually sounds a lot better than theirs. But I was right. <laughs> oh, congratulations. That's, that's you know, you're, you're winning. Is that is that 3-2? So yeah. anyway, so we've got a couple more. Tigers? Mm, I guess no. Same reason. Anna? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say no. Yeah, you're both right. No, they didn't eat the tigers. Also too dangerous. Just three more now. Monkeys. Oh, monkey brain is a thing, I think. True. Monkeys do have brains. I think they ate the monkeys. They didn't. They thought they were too similar to humans to consume. Oh, which is which is a weird place to draw the line. I think. Yeah. To be honest, I would draw the line at, at great apes. I I think I might draw the line before great apes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay. So penultimate one: hippo, hippopotamus. Oh, there's good eating at a hippopotamus. Yes, no doubt. I mean, hippopotami. They're famously very dangerous. I also would imagine that they're quite chewy. Mm, they do look chewy. So I'm gonna say no. Um, Anna's right again, but not for the reason. So, as I said, this wasn't driven out of like a, a crowd robbing these animals and then putting them on on the spit. The hippopotamus, they said, if you pay 80,000 francs, we'll sell the hippopotamus to the butchers and obviously distribute it. That was deemed too expensive, which is fair enough, I guess. Yeah, but I get like one of the reasons that I was thinking they would is because you could get so much meat off it. Like They are chunky boys. Yeah. Although, I don't know how much of it, because they've got really thick skin, so I don't know how much of it is, like, edible. Okay, the final one. Okay. The piece de resistance. I can't win. Oh, you know what? Three points for this last one. Oh, I'm back in. <laughs> the two elephants, Castor and Pollux. Okay, Anna, you answer first. I think that in addition to wanting some elephant meat, some of those horrible people will want some ivory. So I'm going to say they ate the elephants and they used their bones and their tusks for ivory. Okay. I think this is a trick question. I think they ate one and not the other. Oh, that's, that would be a good answer. But unfortunately, no, they ate both. Uh, it was described as, as tough, coarse and oily. I think I read that somewhere there's a plaque to dedicate to these two lovely elephants um, because people were very sad. They were only animals that were referred to by actual names rather than just their species. So obviously complex feelings about eating these elephants. There was a guy, I think, in the end of 19th, 20th century who had London Zoo call him if 
an animal died recently, so he could try and eat that animal. Mm. There was a famous gourmet society, which Charles Darwin was a member of as well, that tried to eat every animal. Yeah, so like I think they tried like rhinoceros and all of this kind of weird stuff. And famously, you know, turtles suffered so much from being delicious. If you were going to eat an exotic animal, it can be an extinct one or it can be on the brink of extinction or whatever. Like, no judgment here. We know you're not really going to do it. But if you were going to do it, no, we're not going to cancel you. But if you were going to do it, what do you think looks tastiest? I'm glad you've precluded the uh, notion of cancellation. Yeah, if someone tries to cancel you, direct them to me. Do Tyrannosaurus Rex and such like dinosaurs count as animals? Yeah. Definitely. Then probably a T-Rex. I Just to really, like, show it who's boss. Mate, I want a T-bone steak, and I want it now. <laughs> I think most carnivore animals don't look too tasty. I think herbivores are the tasty boys. I would say that, like, certainly in Britain, culturally, we don't really eat carnivorous animals. But that doesn't mean they don't taste good. We just, I've never tried one. I've, I've, I think I've had crocodile. Ooh. How was that? It was sort of somewhere between chicken and fish. I think that's what a T-Rex would be most like, because a crocodile is basically just a dinosaur. Tell me I'm wrong, scientists. Get at me, students. <laughs> I always feel very sad for turtles and tortoises because they suffered so much from being so tasty. I think they suffered from being tasty, and also the, one of the big mistakes they made was coming pre-packaged <laughs> in their own bowl. I had an octopus in Seville a couple of years ago, and I think from most meats you kind of alienate from the fact that it's a meat. It's this kind of lump of goodness and um, whereas not plus it's very clear on the plate you're like oh that boy was mm. was floating that boy was was dancing around not two days ago in the bay and then i, I saw it and i felt this it's suckers on the inside of my cheek and was just like i'm gonna become a vegan now <laughs> So if anyone if anyone knows of any vegan octopus replacements, um, please at me. It was honestly the worst even experience. It was really nice. Um, you know, it was like part of a tapas thing. And I was like, oh, octopus, I'll have that after my pork. And yeah. Yeah, I've had a fair bit of squid where like you can still sort of make out the, the tentacles and stuff. But yeah, it's definitely, you've got to be feeling brave. Anna, I feel like you haven't picked an animal to eat. Nothing too slimy. If it didn't contribute to their further extinction, I would quite like to try a turtle or a tortoise just because there is like all of this thing about how tasty they are. However, I think that would be like, considering the current situation, it would be deeply immoral. Like I said, you're not going to get cancelled. We know you're not really going to do it. Right. But, you know, I think I would quite like to know what is it that made them so special and so tasty what the big fuss was about have you ever wondered you know when people eat mussels and oysters like who was the first person to put their lips to that shell and go and suck like what what was that guy doing oysters used to be peasant food what were they doing (laughs) (laughs) trying to bulk out their food with stuff they found on the subject of seafood i have been thinking about it and i think like and i'm gonna go for like a prehistoric creature like because I think I would go for, like, an ammonite. You know, because it's, like, between a squid and a prawn. Like, it's got, it's got a shell, but it's got tentacles. I think I think that would be pretty good. I, I think it would taste like a really good lobster. I think it's, it's going to be a bit che- more chewy than a prawn, probably towards a squid. But tasting a bit like a prawn. They got quite big as well. And I feel that would be quite fun, like a big centrepiece for like a dinner party, like you bring out like, and now for the main event, oh, it's the Nautilus, 10,000 leagues oh. under the sea. So many poor animals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Look, if humans didn't eat them, something else would have done. That is just nature. Yeah, but I do feel like going and donating to World Wildlife Fund now. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll t- do that off the air. <laughs> I think this might be a great point for us to conclude what has been an extremely enjoyable conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I actually want to compliment you on like a really well-planned funny anecdote slash activity. Preparation is my middle name. Thank you for joining us, Anthony Preparation Chapman. That's okay. I've been Anthony Preparation Chapman. <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted to talk to you all. <laughs> Well, in that case, Anna, thank you for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. Uh, And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens in the podcast stays in the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.